Welcome everybody to Sober, Stories of Badgers and Power and Recovery. Um, today, this is a special podcast focusing on the African-American community, and this is an African-American podcast. Uh, this is a podcast with Wisconsin Voices for Recovery, and my name is Aaron Claiborne. I am the Outreach Specialist for the Engagement to Recovery Program with Wisconsin Voices. Uh, Wisconsin Voices is a peer-run movement that helps unite people in recovery, their families, professionals, and allies. As a diverse coalition of recovery advocates, uh, we serve a statewide network to link services and support to those in need. Uh, and joining me today is Startina White. Uh, Startina is a program manager slash coordinator of a peer specialist-based recovery program at w WCS located in Milwaukee. Um, welcome, and, and please tell our listeners a bit more about yourself, Startina. Well, hi, Aaron. So I am Startina White. Um, I go by Star, and I am a African-American mother of six adult children, and I work full-time in my role. I am also in recovery. Very nice. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we're going to get right into some questions I'd like to ask you and get some feedback from your uh, experiences in life. But we'll begin by asking a little bit about your background. So tell me about yourself, um, including your professional background and your current role. Get a little detailed with that, if you can, please. Sure, absolutely. So um, my background is uh, I currently work full time. Um, as you said, I'm the program coordinator and manager of a peer-based run program. So our entire team is a team of peer specialists slash some are recovery coaches as well. Um, but it's a certified peer specialist program and we re re support people in their recovery, mental health and substance use recovery. Um, so I was in addiction for about seven years um and i had a very unmanageable life i didn't know what my background was going to lead me to um when i discovered recovery and treatment um i met some very very special people in my life and they saw my passion for wanting to be in recovery because i came to the conclusion that life was unmanageable and i needed to do something different i was 41 years old and completely unaware of where my life was going to go. And I took the peer specialist training in my 10th month of recovery and my life has prospered ever since. Awesome. Awesome. That is, that is so great. Um, you know, as a peer, as a peer specialist and a recovery coach myself, I love to uh, reflect on, my transition from an individual with substance use disorder to recovery to becoming uh, uh, more of an advocate for the individuals and the career recovery community at large. I love to hear those stories. Um, so I'm going to ask you a little bit about your personal experience with drugs and alcohol. So the first, the first question I'd like to ask you is, uh, how were you introduced to drugs and alcohol? So when I was looking at this question, you know, when I think of introduces like, hi, Aaron, this is Star. How are you? I would like for you to meet her. 
Mm-hmm. That's not how I was introduced to drugs and alcohol. So I was introduced to drugs and alcohol because it was in my environment. Um, I saw my mom, my dad, um, some aunts, and I saw a different level of people doing a different level of things. Um, didn't seem very appealing to me until I was about 13 and I was not comfortable at home and I wasn't comfortable at school, even though I was very smart. So there used to be these little parties and I was in, uh, uh, asked to go to a party and I went in um, very uncomfortable. And so they had liquor. Nobody actually said, hey, you want to drink? Because the girls that I went with were smart like me. So this was all out of the ordinary for all of us. However, they were into sex and I was into relaxing, finding out what I wanted. Um, and the liquor was there and I took a cup. So nobody ever said, hey, do you want a drink? Or hey, do you want this? It has always been a decision that I has, was uncomfortable with something in my life. And I said, maybe this will make it better. So that's how I was introduced to drugs and alcohol. Okay, yeah, I can relate to that. Um, there wasn't any peer pressure. What you're saying is just uh, maybe trying to cope. Issues are when you're trying to cope with something that's uh, weighing heavy on you. Yes, right. cope, fit in. You know, you know, at 13, you real awkward. You know, especially I was. I thought I was taller than everybody, skinnier than everybody. Um, and I wanted something to not think about that at the time. Right. Uh, going through puberty is, can be a very difficult stage for, for kids, like finding out who you are and all these changes, physical changes and emotional changes can be uh, difficult for a child to deal with. So, yeah, I, I can relate to that as well. So what was it that was appealing to you about using drugs and alcohol? So what was appealing is that whatever I was experiencing when I was sober, um, whatever I didn't have the courage to do when I was sober, I had the courage to do when I was under the influence. Yeah, I I get that too. They call it, sometimes we call alcohol uh, courage courage juice or something like that. And because it does lower your inhibitions and it, you know, in a sense gives you more of a, like a sense of confidence, uh, that Superman complex, I guess I like to call it, you know, in retrospect, uh, it can make you more comfortable in social settings and things of that nature. So yeah, I can relate to that as well. I'm sure a lot of our listeners can, can relate to that too. Okay. Uh, next question. Uh, what led you to continue your use of drugs and or alcohol? So, um, You know, my story might be unique to others. It might be similar to others, but I only drank or um, I didn't smoke or do any kind of drugs until I was 20. So I only drank when I had to be um, in big crowds of people. So um, and that's not me minimizing it. That's just the way it was. It was never something that like I woke up saying, like, I want to drink. it was when I had to have gatherings or go to places or go to things. And then when I was 20, uh, I was in a relationship and the guy sold marijuana. So this was my kid's father. He sold marijuana and um, he smoked it. I never smoked it with him. 
you know, by then, you know, people all always had joints and they would be like, you want some? And I would say no. And that would be it. Nobody never was like, come on. So I would be like, no, that's not my thing. So um, he didn't come home one night and it was about three in the morning. I had drank, in, drank about a bottle and a half of wine. I didn't have any more wine. No stores were open to get any more. But I knew he had this marijuana. So I didn't know how to roll it, what to do with it. But I knew I could put it in something and light it. <laughs> and that's what I did. Um, and that's how I started smoking marijuana when I was 20. I put it in the bong and I lit it. And... Um, I actually passed out. So I really don't remember how exactly it made me feel because I passed out at the dining room table. Um, and that was that. <laughs> but um, because so many people around me at the time smoked marijuana, I felt like I had conquered something. And I didn't even tell the person I was in a relationship with that I had started it. But I would take some of his and then I would go to my girlfriend's house and say, roll this because I didn't even know what to do with it. Um and that that perpetuated. So that's what I did. Okay. Yeah, I I can also relate to that that process of you know going from one thing to another. Um, so do you, can you elaborate on any other type of substance use disorder that? Yes. You so I told you that from that relationship because that's how it started. It started with me feeling very alone, abandoned, angry. Um, disrespected because I knew that the this this guy, he was the father of of my kids at the time and I knew he was out there cheating on me. That that was very evident. And so um I wanted something to make me not think about that. And so that's how I use marijuana. I use marijuana from the time I was twenty until I got sober, uh when I was forty one. And so it perpetuated because throughout this process I would be with different people and whatever they were doing at the time, which I want to say when I was about 34, um, I was in a relationship and they put crack on their weed. So they, they used laced joints is what they was called. Um, and so even though they did it, I didn't do it. But again, this person didn't come home and I ended up saying I got a case of the, yeah. and I tried it. Um, and so that was that. Um, however, that lasted for about two years. And then from that two years, I went to prison. So I went to prison and, and, and during my prison stay, I was like, that's not something I'm going to do again because it took me down a very, very dark path. So years forward, I get into another relationship and this person sells and does heroin. And so I didn't know that he used heroin. I caught him one day and when I walked in the bathroom and I think that he was using it, I was like, oh, wow, I can't believe it. But it wasn't so bad to me in my mind because he wasn't broke. He wasn't needing for anything. He was very well off, um, but he was very emotionally and mentally abusive. And so at this time, even though I am working two jobs and I'm you know, doing my part, it was a lot of other stuff going on in my life 
um, that I, I wasn't dealing with. And so to get away from him, I wanted to be numb. And that's how I using, started using heroin. And so that lasted for um, about two years as well. So he overdosed and died. Um, and I continued using for about six more months. Um, and then I just went to a very, very dark place. And that's when I decided to get sober. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's, that's, a, that's pretty deep. Um, like the recognition of someone who overdoses that you're close to or that you may, you know, may engage in the practices of using drugs, that doesn't affect you. The same thing happened to me. Uh, I had a, a very similar situation. It was with my, uh, my best friend. Passed away. I, was, I continued use, although that was someone close to me. And uh, that just, you know, solidifies how powerful substance use disorder is. Um, so, yeah, thank you for that. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Um, I think you kind of summed it up, but uh, in whole, in, how, how long were you addicted to drugs and alcohol? So if so, I'm honest with you, I would say from the time that I was 13 till the time I was 41. Because I started, you know, it might not have been the same drug and it might not have been all the years, but it did. It started at 13 and it ended at 41. So to me, it really doesn't matter how long in between I might have been clean or or how I was clean. You know what I mean? Because to me, being sober means making the choice and making the decisions to be sober, to wake up and work on recovery every day. And that's not how I was sober for so many years in between there so you know there was a lot of prison stays in between there there was a lot of treatments that i was forced to go to for a probation and other reasons so when i decided to get sober at 41 i wasn't made to do it it was a choice yeah i get that yeah yeah i can relate to that as well i'm sure a lot of our listeners can as well um how you know that that brings us to our uh, our next uh, section of the interview, which is finding recovery. So, what was it that you experienced that finally led you to recovery? Um. So initially, I went to detox, and I went to detox because I had lost three jobs within three months that I had been holding on to for uh, three years. I had been working these jobs, either one for the whole three years, then one for two of the three years, and then one for one of the three years. But I had all three of them at some point through this three years. And um, when he passed away and died, uh, I didn't have that person with that um, emotional and mental abuse to make me stay on top of that part of my life. So it spiraled. So when I made the conscious decision to go um, to detox, um, it was because I had went to go stay with her aunt. She's a pastor. Um, She didn't poke me. She didn't prod me. She didn't ask me a lot of questions. She just let me be. And 
you know, I've always been a person that need time to think for myself. I don't need like a lot of opinions or a lot of thoughts. I just need some time to to get my own thoughts together. And she gave me that time. And every night she would come and pray over me for a little while, just a little couple minutes. And then she would go back to her room. And so um, she knew what I was doing, but she never said anything. And I ran out of money. So when I ran out of money, uh, the thought of prostitution crossed my mind. And it, it just, it made me sick to think about it. So she left, she just so happened to live right down the street from the detox place. And I went. And when I went, my thoughts were, I just need to get, I just need to get clean for seven days where I can go and do a clean UA and get me a new job. That was my plan when I went in there for those seven days. However, I met three very, very special women at that detox place. And I went in there very judgmental and uh, very insecure, just everything. And these women sat down and that I don't think they realized what they were saying to me, but what they were saying to me and how they looked was what I wanted. You know, they wasn't all dazzled up. They wasn't all overly done. They were regular looking women that looked like they loved coming to work and they were working to help people and they were doing it genuinely. And they shared their story with me there and it all changed. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, that's that portion of giving back, which I love to do. And I love to, I love to hear about stories when individuals give back and it, it creates a, it sparks a, you know, sparks a message in someone's, you know, in a person's brain, like, and it's almost that, you know, from everything you've told me, if you can do it, I can do it. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a great feeling to be able to give back and to change people's lives and get them on a path to recovery. That is, that is an amazing story. Um, now I, I like to ask you, um, what barriers did you encounter when finding recovery, especially in the African-American community? So um, the barriers that I encountered were my mindset, one, and two was um, the stigmas and the rumors um, about the places that I could potentially go to for recovery. So you know, at the time, I didn't think of, you know, the people that I was getting my information from. Um, I didn't think like <laughs> I didn't think to question what they were saying, you know, and they said, you know, oh, make sure they don't sing you here or make sure they don't sing you there. You know what I mean? I didn't think about that. Um, like, oh, my God, look who's selling me this. Like, I need to get this from someone else. But what happened was the places that they were telling me about terrified me because they were areas that I knew. They were areas that I was like, someone's going to see me. And at that time, I was still very insecure. There was so much stuff I hadn't worked through. And I was like, oh, my God, I can't go to nowhere. You know, across the street from a liquor store, uh, uh, a spot around the corner that I just was getting my stuff from. You know, that was a lot for me. Um, and so those were the most barriers was... They're, you know, and I get it, you know, they have to 
place these recovery places and centers and treatments in, you know, kind of not so great areas um, because the people who that they are serving and I get it that you can't run from an area your your whole life. You know what I mean? You, you're going to have to face it at some point. But that terrified me. And, and that was a barrier for me. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is certainly uh, a true statement. Um, there are all kind of barriers that that can present themselves um, when you're seeking recovery. And, and especially in the African-American community, um, due to all the liquor stores that, that are you know prevalent uh, and, and a number of other things that, that can be barriers mm-hmm. that you will encounter that you can mm-hmm. possibly encounter on your path to recovery. So yeah, I can, I can see how that, that can be a, a real barrier or those uh, instances can be barriers. Um, okay. So the next question I like to ask you is about stigma. And the first question is um, before you began your recovery journey, uh, what type of stigma did you experience personally and how did it impact you? So um, the stigma that I encountered to me was I'm only capable of doing certain things because because of my background. So I place some of the stigma on myself um, as well as the way I felt people looked at me. Um, So I felt like because of my background with drugs and alcohol and my criminal background as well, I felt like I was only capable of doing certain things. Like I had to go to the temp service and find a job because who's going to hire me right out. Um, And I just felt like everyone knew, Um, you know, because some of the things in my past, how can I not, how can I explain them without letting them know that it was because of drugs and alcohol? Like, how else can I explain, you know, A, B, and C if I don't explain that it was, you know, tied into this? So I think, you know, going into places like even that recovery place that I ended up going to, um, I was the only black person there. Um, so, you know, I just felt like even the, the detox that I went to initially, I had been there for like five days before anyone had really sat down and had a decent conversation with me of the staff. So I felt like even from, from the detox and the, the treatment place, I felt like they had seen so much of it that they just assumed I was like everyone else. Yeah. So why, why give her your time? You know what I mean? Um, I, I, you know, I don't, I mean, we're not in California or we're not in any of these places where you walk into treatment, you know, with suitcases and, you know, all these luxurious things, you know, you, when you go, you really look pretty run down. Yeah. So, you know, you need people to not be judgmental, you know, you don't need to feel like, you know, people are snickering about you or talking about you. You, you need to feel welcome and, and, you know, care for like someone really actually cares and i didn't feel like that i felt like oh here go another one of these you know what i mean yeah um so so that's what i i faced um 
it, it was it was real challenging because I was looking for a reason to not continue. You know what I mean? And if you're looking for a reason, you're gonna find one. Yeah. Um. Fortunately, I was able to you know quiet my mind to get to the next step. And like each step, I was determined to say like you know. People have always seen great things in you, and it's time for you to start seeing them in yourself. Um, so don't worry about, you know, what you did. Worry about what you're trying to do. And I didn't know what that was, but I know that I know how to carry myself, and I know how to talk, and I know how to ask for help, and that's what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. So I, 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 um, I saw that you, you mentioned – you had some internal stigma about yourself. Uh, and that is a, a, a an additional form of stigma. You felt like you didn't deserve that level of care. You felt like um, it was your fault that other people had seen you in, a, in whatever lowered capacity or lower capabilities um, that they, their perception was. That's what stigma does. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 is you know it's a very you know damaging view to have on people and like you said when you went to the to the recovery center and you didn't have a conversation with any of the staff for five days that may have been attributed to stigma like you said like mm-hmm. it's the same thing it's that revolving door i'm tired of these people come in they're all the same that stigma is a it's a real thing as well Yes. And that's something that needs to be addressed. And don't add the fact that, you know, one of my son came smelling like a bag of marijuana. My kid's dad came to see me while I was there completely loaded off of alcohol. And then here I am. You know what I mean? So it was like. This girl ain't finna get clean. This girl, you know what I mean? This is, you know, and and so, you know, and each time each one of those people came to see me, my stomach would like was boiling, you know? So now I'm like, oh my God, if I do get clean, then what? Because everyone around me is doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Then you throw in that that stigma of being uh, African-American. There, you know, you're uh, <laughs> you're battling yep. a lot. You were dealing with a lot, to say the least. You know. Yeah. When that you're trying lot. to get, when you're trying to change your life, um, unfortunately for us, it's like even when you want to do better, you battling yourself because now you feel like um, I don't want people to think I'm 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 um I think I'm better because I want to be better, and now it's like a guilt and a shame. You know what I mean? Cause you want to change. So now it's like, I want to change and I'm learning how to change. But in order for me to change, like a lot of stuff going to have to change. And so a lot of people not going to be happy. Um, So now you're battling that. You know what I mean? What do I deserve? You know what I mean? What do I owe them? Do I owe the, you know, it's, it's so much, you know, because you want to, you want to end the cycle and you want to do something different and, and people don't see everyone don't see your passion and your dream for what you want to be. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. Or don't understand it. So it's like, whoo. 
Yeah, stigma creates those barriers. It certainly yeah. does. Roadblocks, obstacles, um, feelings of guilt and shame definitely uh, arise from stigma. So I want to ask you this question. How did the stigma associated with substance use disorder deter you or prevent you from seeking recovery? I know you touched on that a little bit, but do you have any any other examples that you can so what it the stigma um how did it deter me or prevent me from seeking recovery because so when i was in my addiction i needed the substance to continue what i was trying to do so it's like i needed i needed to work i needed to pay bills i needed to do this so it's like i was using to work and working to use you know what i mean so it's like uh, I'm afraid to go, you know, and tell my employer, hey, you know, listen, I'm having an issue um, and I need to go get myself together because now I'm afraid of, you know, the what stigma. they're going to say. Yeah, yeah the yeah. stigma, <laughs> you know, what's the, you know, now I have to come back to all that sober. Like, there's no way, you yeah. know, I didn't feel like um, I was valued enough to have them support me in that way. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I like the way you worded that. I like the way you put that together. All right. Next question is, what type of stigma do you experience currently, both professionally and personally, and how does it impact you? Okay. So, um, honestly, I'm, I'm unaware <laughs> of it, to be honest with you. So I'm unaware of it because I have learned so much and so many tools that's not my stuff anymore. So sometimes when I'm in, in meetings and, you know, I'm the only person that looks like me in all of these meetings, mm-hmm. I feel like um, I think my own internal stuff starts happening. And, and and so I start thinking like, okay, am I smart enough to be in this meeting? Am I on it enough to be around these people? So it's, it's coming from within me because I didn't plan on being in these meetings, a lot of these meetings with the people that I'm in them with, and they haven't directly made me feel any type of way the the two people that supervise me don't look like me don't sound like me and they have pushed me to be where i am and they um it almost makes me be emotional because they let me know that they value me and that they and 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 my worth to this company and to the organization. So they let me know, like, no, we got your back. You know what I mean? Like, do it. Do you do what you need to do, you know, to grow and to learn. And we got you. Um, And some things, you know, um, because most of my team doesn't look like me, you know, so sometimes I feel some type of way about supervising them. They tell me, you are the best supervisor that we've ever had. And my supervisors tell me, do it, do what you think, you know, don't run it past us, but we got you. If you think this is what needs to be done, do it. And so it's me removing that stigma now from myself. 
Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it can, it can be hard. Uh, and, I, you know, I like to praise all recovery supportive um, organizations and, and businesses because you don't have that stigma. They support recovery. They're aware of um, the process of uh, substance use disorder recovery and how damaging stigma can be. Um, yeah, but I, I can, you know, I'm in a predominantly white community and uh, there may be some perceived stigma because just like you said, these people don't look like me. They don't come from, where I, they're not where I, where I come from. They haven't been through the things that I've been through. So yeah, that internal stigma uh, can be huge. Mm-hmm. Good. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. All right. So we're going to go to the next section of questions. And this is about the community impact of AODA, of AODA, of mm-hmm. substance use disorder. Okay. So living in a community or environment where drugs and alcohol were readily available, what was peer pressure like for you to get involved with using drugs? And I know you did speak about mm-hmm. that, but if there were any instances of peer pressure, share them with, the, with our audience, please. Um, it wasn't, to be honest with you, it, it wasn't, um, it was just readily available. You know, the, the liquor stores, you know, you can pay someone to go in a liquor store for you and get the liquor. Um, it was just so readily available. It's not like, you know, in the suburbs or, you know, some of these other, you know, communities, we have liquor stores, um, everywhere. And so, and, and, and back when, I was experimenting. Um, you know, now they're going to shoot you off. It's not as many people standing out and around the liquor stores as it used to be. I will say that. It's, it's not like it used to be, you know, because it used to be um, you knew Freddie was going to be by the liquor store. You you don't, Freddie don't know your mama, your daddy, know nobody, but you know right. Freddie's name. You know why? Because when you walk past, he out there. Yeah. So yeah. you knew you could give him $2 or the change you know, to go in there and get you something to drink. So it was just so available. And then, you know, you know, and and this is one thing that I know about all, you know, um, races. Parents really don't think their kids going to be stealing their stuff. You know what I mean? They really don't. They think that they got it hid. They think that, you know, they really don't, you know, think that, that you're watching that much where you can go and take their stuff. Yeah. So, you know, even though I didn't, you know, but I remember my sister taking some of my mom and my dad's weed, you know, or yeah. a beer out of the refrigerator, you know, because they're so intoxicated. <laughs> they're not going to notice yeah, you're missing. I, can <laughs> I mean, I've seen yeah. the, those kind of things happen. Um, you know, when you were talking about you know, back in the day, you could always find somebody to buy you a bottle of alcohol, slip them a couple bucks. And if you had a mon- enough money that day, like, I'll buy you a small bottle. It was always there. Not to mention uh, guys hanging out on the block who are selling drugs. You're walking past multiple drug dealers. Uh, and, and I'm speaking to the African-American community. This is this is I'm from Chicago originally. This is the same thing that happens in Milwaukee you know, in Compton, California, and Mm -hmm. Brooklyn, New York. It is a common thing, and it's so readily available that you have all sorts of access to it. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, I get that, you know. And um, 
I, you know, I did some of the same things like you said your sister did, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, she won't miss it. She don't even know what she has, you know. Mm-hmm. Going to the bedroom. But, yeah, it is very readily available. And uh, and for me, I, I did have some peer pressure. Uh, yeah. Involved. So, yeah. Uh, and as many people do. Uh, that yeah, be- you know, we I was around people that was older than me. Um, but... You know, they, they they would ask, like, you know, you want something to drink? Um, but it wasn't a, if I said no, it wasn't a, you know, for yes. one, every nobody had money for one. So <laughs> nobody had enough to really be sharing with you. So right. it was kind of like, if you come in, see if you can get 2 or $3 from your mom, and I'll get 3 or $4 from my mom, and maybe right. we can get something together. But really, it wasn't. You know, like that we just had it readily available where we can go get this gallon of anything right. and then we not worried about it. So if you said you didn't want none, you didn't want none. That was right. that. It wasn't a oh you it it was I wasn't around that, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. No, I get that. Um now I had peer pressure for other things, but it wasn't for drugs. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I feel you on that. All right, let me ask you to describe um, what the availability of illicit street drugs looks like in your community now. So um, in my community now, I, you know what? I, I, I'm not aware because I'm not looking for it now, you know, yeah. but I still know what areas and I say my community when I when you know like so I can't say my block or or my four or five block radius I can't say that, but I know the areas to go to. So my community is Milwaukee in whole. Yeah. And so because I live in Milwaukee, if I ever was to relapse, I know what street to walk down, and find some drugs. Right. You know yeah. that's that's it, it. It's been the same from the time I was. 11 and it's the same now so i might not walk down the exact street but i know within a two or three block radius i'm going to see someone in in in, in a lot uh, i mean a lot of areas of milwaukee where they can sell, tell me where this 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 or that is at yeah definitely and if you got a few extra bucks they will take you to it themselves and, <laughs> and if they don't know where it is they're gonna find it for you all of the above. All of the above. So, um, I'm going to ask you, how did that impact your substance use uh, and recovery? Um, you can think back to when you're 11, 12, or you could, you know, maybe speak about the current times, uh, how that impacted your substance use and recovery all the availability of of drugs and alcohol in in your community. So I'll think about it as in terms of each, each drug that I tried. Right. So when I was only smoking and I'm not saying only as it's minimizing, but when I was smoking marijuana only by itself, Mm -hmm. um, same thing. I knew where to go to get it. If I didn't know exact houses, because we had houses back then that you can go, they were spots. So I knew where to go to get it. So when it graduated from that to lace joints, unfortunately, I was selling drugs. So, of course, I knew where to get it and I knew where to get it in big quantities. So 
still I knew exactly where to get it and and and, and when it progressed um it was even more readily available so when you get into the harder stuff which is crack which you know because I laced my joints it was the crack and the heroin what happened is I, I didn't really have to go out there to get it because, like I said, the guy that I was with, he sold it. So when he died, I didn't have a connect. Yeah. So that was that was the that was the thing. So I had to go and find it, and um, I didn't I didn't have that money to to go and find it, and it was very it was very hard because initially when I went to go stay with my aunt that I told you I went to go stay with, yeah. I went to go I still had my house. I went to go stay with her because. I knew that the drug that I was on, which was heroin, was right down the street from her house. Yeah. So that's what motivated me to go stay with her. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see how that, how that connection is uh, made, you know, as far as it goes to the, the impact of your substance use and mm-hmm. recovery. You know, I'm not going to stay at home. You know, everybody over here has something to sell, and I know it's right there in my face. So let me transition to my aunt's house where it's not mm-hmm. like that. All right. What what do you think perpetuates the cycle of distribution or sale of illicit street drugs in your community? Why does that, you know, why does it continue? What what increases? It continues that? because it it for the fame of it. One the fame of it, the way it's is is uh glamorized. Um two because uh, a lot of I would say the majority of people who is selling is using something. Mm-hmm. Um and three is because this is alarm behavior. So when you are 14 and no one in, in your immediate is working, but you have um, uncle who's selling weed, you have cousin who's selling crack, you have uh, dad who's on something, crack or heroin, what looks more appealing to you? The, the the dad using the crack or the heroin or the cousin that's sitting back getting the money that your dad is bringing him? So you, it's like this is learned. You don't have um, Jimmy, you know, that's going to work and coming home and, and providing for his family. That's not what you're seeing. Yeah. You're seeing, so you see this. And you say, okay, so I'm not gonna do. I don't want to do that, so I'm gonna do this. Yeah. And and that, and that cycle goes on and on. So now you have two cousins, and they don't even they don't use anything but marijuana. Let's say that. Um, and now you have Eddie, who is great in basketball, going to school, making good grades. You know, not even cussing yet, and he's 14. And but his mom is using and cousins is throwing him a few bucks here and there, you know, and um, it looked like it's too hard to keep going to school and to keep making good grades and playing basketball when your shoes is falling off. You know what I'm saying? So instead of doing that and, and then you, you got mom might be out here prostituting or she might, he can't have friends over. He can't, you know, so even though he might, Say he not never gonna be like that, but because he don't have anybody who's saying, "Hey, dude, they taking pictures with money over here." You know what I mean, and making it look good. 
They not saying, hey, dude, even though this is what we doing, don't do it. We're going to buy you some, some shoes, go to school, get good grades. He doesn't have that. So what are you going to say? Give me a pack. Right. Yeah. And it, it starts off with, I'm going to go to school. Oh, I can sell weed at school. You know what I mean? And that's how it goes. That's, that cycle gets perpetuated. That that is That's a real thing for those who may be listening to this, that those are thing, real things that happen and, and, you know, in our communities, maybe in other communities as well. But uh, I can I can definitely speak to the African-American community uh, and the things I've experienced. Um, that, that you mentioned the glamorization of it. It is it is very glamorous uh, lifestyle when you're looking at it, when you're looking at the, the, the wads of money, the nice cars. And you were in if you are Jimmy working at McDonald's or working somewhere and, and providing like you, you may be struggling and you realize that I can make 10 times this amount of money in one day. In that's one day. Very, that's very appealing. It's not right. It's not, but it, it's, mm-hmm. it can be so hard and so difficult to maintain um, financial stability. I mean, that you seem like you're left with no options. It's challenging when when so many people are around you doing the same thing and you want to do something different. It's very challenging, you know. Um, it's, it, it, it is, and it's sad, but, but it's true. You know, it's very challenging. Um, the, the, the language, the behaviors, you know, all of this is very challenging when you when you are a young African-American person that you know you're different. You know, that was part of me growing up. I knew that something was different about me. Um, and instead of embracing it, you know, I ran from it. You know what I mean? They told me from a very young age, oh, you're so proper. And I was like, I don't hear that. I, I, I don't hear that at all. Um, so I didn't understand. So then I started having a problem with my tone of voice because I, I knew that I had a, a deeper or raspier voice. So it was just so many different things that, you know, if you have someone, um, downing you or criticizing you, you know what I mean? You don't, you know, I don't believe there's a, a too many mothers that say, I want you to go out there and be the best drug dealer there is. That's, <laughs> that's, you know what I mean? That's not what they say. But when the bills are due and you and you find this money in your son's drawer um, and you've been through stuff too, you say, you know, don't be having this in my house, but at the same time, give me $200. Yeah, right. And yeah. what is that telling them? That's telling them that it's okay long as I pay her to be quiet. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, and then like like you were saying that uh, you know you don't get pushed to do be- better. You get teased. That's that stigma. Like, I'm, yeah. say for instance, you know, there's that kid who's going to school every day who doesn't involve himself with gangs or drugs. All those guys who are dealing drugs, making this money, driving these fancy cars, like, oh, you're a square, you're broke, this and that. You know, along with the kind of feelings of disappointment that you you can't afford that you cannot afford the thing that these guys have there's a mm-hmm. stigma of you're not in that crowd you're not one of the cool kids you're not accepted and that mm-hmm. creates more stigma and in turn that'll perpetuate that you know that cycle of you know 
drugs being in the community perpetuates mm-hmm. the cycle of uh, quote unquote uh, you know failing to mm-hmm. achieve your goals or be the best you yeah. that you you are yeah all right um next question why do you think it continues to be an issue in, in communities of color which you you already expressed uh, mm-hmm. but is this this question is more geared toward like how do you break that cycle how did that cycle get broken um i think you break that cycle by doing what we're doing i think you break that cycle by uh, using the voice that you have by continuing to be strong in uh in my own recovery by when i see something i say something um and not upholding those codes um by just continuing to get myself out there and say hey you know what not i used to be you i am you yeah yeah i am you you know what i mean i am you i i get it um and it is challenging by using our words the right way you know so many people say but it's hard no the table is hard the door is hard the floor is hard yeah changing in life is challenging it's not hard yeah it's not unbreakable you know what i mean it can be done um and you might need some support through it but you can do it um and just by trying to create those pathways for people and you know saying something you know it's easy to see a panhandler um a child adult whatever and give them three dollars and feel good about yourself right yeah how about you take some time to figure out why they out there now if they don't want to talk to you and they shun you off that's another a whole nother thing but don't just roll your window down a little bit and try to give them three dollars and now you feel better about yourself because I ain't have to do that. Look at all them other cars in front of me that didn't do anything. Right. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Who pulled over though? You know what I mean? Who pulled over and said, you know, I can call 211 for you or I can access a line for you or what is going on? You know what I mean? I don't want to help you for right now or for today. What can I do to get you in a whole other better place? Yeah. And definitely. connect you to something. Like that that's what it is going to take, you know. People not just turning their head or, you know, turning up the radio. Right. Yeah. It's it's the, yeah, the lack of support. Oh, the, you know, yeah, that, that is, that is hitting the head, the nail on the head. All right. We're going to move on to the next section. And this is the last section, the last questions I'll be asking you. Um, and this is reflecting on challenges to recovery in, in the African-American communities. So circling back to your personal journey of recovery, what have you learned that inspires you to continue maintaining your recovery? Um, the, the main thing I've learned is that um, you, when you know better, you do better, right? So yeah. no, matter what I'm, no matter what I'm going through, no matter what I could possibly go through, um, using drugs or alcohol is not going to make the situation better. Mm, it's only going to make it worse because I now know that I am an addict and I have addictive behavior, whether it is drugs, relationships, money, work, no matter what it is, I have an addictive behavior. There is no such thing as me doing anything one time. (laughs) There is no such thing as it. 
So because I know that, um, I learned that if I use, see, when I started using, I was making choices that I didn't know I had. I, I didn't know how to choose. You know, I didn't know, you know, that it was a choice. I was choosing a choice that I didn't even have a choice to make. Now I have that choice to pick up because yeah. now my inhibitions are not lowered. Um, I know I have the tools. I know the outcome. You cannot convince me of any other outcome. I don't care if we Buddha, beta, celebration, or, um, you know, mourning. I know the consequences. So because I am of clear mind, I want to be of clear mind to feel whatever it is that I need to feel um, and to go through whatever I need to go through because today I got the tools to, to do that. Um, and I wouldn't give up this life. I wouldn't give up the opportunity that I know I have to make a difference to other people. And so if I choose to use, I don't know who I'm failing to meet or to help out there because I, I chose to use. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. And like knowing that you have a you have addictive behaviors or addictive personality is a can be a great revelation to yourself about yourself. And you can use that in a positive way, how you said you switched it around, you know. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, after finding recovery and reflecting on your previous substance use, um, I'm sorry. What did you, did I ask you that? No. Mm -mm. I'm sorry. After finding recovery and reflecting on your previous substance use, what did you learn about yourself? Um, I learned that I know I am smart. I know that I am strong. Um, I know that I am a survivor. And I know that I have something bigger than me to offer to others. I don't have my body or material things. I have something bigger than me to offer to others. That's within me. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That is, that is, that is good. Um, I, I often thought that uh, I was, I, I, just, I thought that I was, this is just how I am. You know, that, that term. But actually, you know, I, I, I'll answer the same question. Uh, I found out that I can change. You know? mm -hmm. So, yeah, you do find out some things. You learn some things about yourself after after you find recovery. Um, so, yeah. Um, next question. What changes happened in your life after finding recovery? Um, better relationships happened um self-respect i now have integrity um self self-worth um i now appreciate life i appreciate being responsible um i appreciate other people's opinions their point of views um I now know that I can only control what I can control. 
And uh, I don't let things outside of me control me. Um, and it's a very, very good thing. I know that I have very good work ethic. Um, and I'm a very self-aware person. And I wasn't before um, I was in recovery. Yeah, good. Good stuff. I like that. It's very, uh, very, very profound. Thank you. All right. So what advice would you give a person in the African-American community who is battling addiction? I would say um, reach out, reach out, um, ask for help and continue to ask for help. And no matter how the person looks on the other side, advocate and ask for help. If that means saying can you have someone that looks like me talk to me and connect with me, but be open-minded to anyone who comes in to offer that assistance? Because sometimes the other person on the side that wants to offer us support does not look like us, but it does not mean that they don't relate to us or can help us in, in a way. Um, and so I would say try. Um, just try, you know, and, and try and try and be open-minded as open-minded as possible, but try. Yeah. And that, that sounds like a little bit, but that's like maybe the most beneficial, uh, you know, advice you can give a person try, mm -hmm. you know, many people just immediately say, I can't do it. I won't do it. Mm -hmm. I don't want to do it you know, try. You, you never know how that'll turn out. Um, how about advice for someone in the African-American community who's seeking recovery? What advice would you give that person? I would say that um, try. At least, at least, at least, at least take the first step and go to recovery. And in seeking recovery, don't look for an excuse. Don't look for what's wrong with it because that's what a lot of us do. We go in and we can find everything that's wrong. Mm -hmm. But think about what can be right. Um, and, and you only going to get out of it what you put into it. Yeah, no doubt. Definitely. Definitely. That's, that's some good advice right there. All right. So is there anything else you'd like to say that we haven't discussed today? Um, well, I would like to say, you know, we have four different programs for peer specialists run programs that all of our peer specialists are people that are in recovery. Um, we have programs for peer specialists that are supporting you in substance use and mental health, um, totally substance use and criminal and substance use and we want to help you know what i mean we we just want to help we you know we don't we we hear you know our peer specialists have lived experience so we are all in recovery we are non-judgmental so we want to help support people get in recovery and find their own path to recovery we know that you might not do what we did but we just want you to be safe and we want to we want people to find a path 
Yeah. <laughs> any you know, path. Yeah. Yeah. Just any path instead of that dark road of addiction. Because addiction has one road. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, Recovery has many paths. That's right. That's right. Yeah, that was that was very beautiful. Um I'm I'm glad to hear that you all that you have uh multiple su- supportive uh programs within your organization uh I, I like to say i don't think that that there's not a lot uh and if there is a not there's not a lot of well-known uh support groups for in, individuals who's, who've been incarcerated uh along with the other substance use counseling that you guys provide so i think that's a great thing that you guys are doing yeah, and I didn't want to say names because I didn't want to sound like a commercial and I didn't want to, uh, you know, violate anything or anything like that. But Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's, it's good to know, though. So um, we, we all have this information. We can turn to WCS for some of these programs. And I would like to thank you so much for being here, Star. Uh, I appreciate your feedback. I appreciate your insight. Uh, I appreciate you as a person. We've had a few conversations and uh you have a lot to say, a lot of good stuff, and uh, and a lot of good advice that people could really use uh, to change uh, to change lives and support recovery. So again, I want to thank you for being here. It was awesome, and I would like to tell our listeners uh, if you have the opportunity to uh, reach out to any recovery community organization within the state, please do so. There are always some supportive individuals and programs within these organizations so have a great day everyone and thank you for joining us here for our african-american podcast uh sober stories of badgers empowering recovery all right have a great day everybody thank you you're welcome